0: On today's episode, why everyone responds differently to treatment with Alex Murray. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast. The podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers Starting off with an apology. Um, I had a really bad microphone day today. I just got off the call with Alex Murray and um, compressed the file, sent it all into Audacity, ready to do some editing. And my microphone, the gains turned up way too much, and so I'm very crackly. And it's a good thing that Alex did a lot of the talking today because, yeah, I sound terrible. before we get started, Alex Murray is a podiatrist. He works in um, clinics in Canberra with the general population, but also with high performance athletes. Um, He'll delve into a second in a second about his um, S&C training and all that sort of stuff. Alex Murray is also a clinician who collaborates with Cause Health, who essentially just um, how to best understand the body It's injured. In fact, Cause Health do have this book, and the title is Rethinking Causality, Complexity, and Evidence for the Unique Patient. And that's exactly what we delve into today. So, we talk about, first of all, the assessment and diagnoses and why it is so complex and how the person as the individual factors into this because we know it's not a clear cut cookie cutter process and it's not just one diagnosis label that everyone gets because everyone experiences it totally differently. It is a complex topic. Um, It might require you to listen a couple of times, but this is really important because I often see a lot of runners very confused about their diagnosis, confused about why they get different diagnoses or different explanations that might have caused their injury. And then They respond differently to different treatments and it just sparks a lot of confusion, a lot of anxiety maybe, a lot of just muddying the waters a lot and we attempt to highlight that in today's episode and bring a lot of explanation and Alex does an excellent job of that. I hope you enjoy Like I said, Alex's quality, his audio quality is flawless yet mine is um, suboptimal so apologies for that but great content nonetheless. So let's dive in. Alex Murray, thanks for joining me on the Run Smart podcast today. Thanks thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no problem at all. Lovely to be here. Uh, If people aren't familiar with you, and um, I know I did a bit of an intro at the start, but do you want to just give a brief um, intro about who you are, where you're from, and how you found yourself in this particular topic around um, podiatry education communication? It sounds like a fascinating um, career path.
1: Yeah, it's not nothing's nothing was ever really intentional. Um, <laughs> so I, I went to university in, in Victoria at La Trobe University. So that's where I did did my undergrad and Same. thought I'd just be um, yeah yeah it's great great university and and uh, you just sort of leave thinking yeah I'm just gonna go into a clinic gonna work really hard help a lot of people. Um, but then, you know, you start to, to learn a lot more and you see there's a lot more opportunities open. So uh, I went and did a, I went, well, after graduating, I moved to Canberra. I worked uh, with a Olympic medical team podiatrist. So I worked in his clinic, gained a lot of experience. And then through that went, well, I don't think I know enough. Um, and went and did a postgrad grad uh, with the University of Otago. Uh, so, there, so I did a sports and exercise medicine. Then after that, I went, still probably don't, don't know enough, so I then started um, started doing a lot of reading and, and um, educating myself as much as I possibly could. And then, I, then um, yeah, just people started asking me questions. So I eventually ended up sort of starting my own um, education. Uh, well, started with a blog, which is now turned into an education company called Podiatry Systems. Um, still wasn't feeling like I knew enough, so I went and did um, my level one. Uh, Australian Strength and Conditioning Association uh, accreditation. So I'm now a, a, also a strength and conditioning coach, and then I'm still not feeling like I know enough. So <laughs> I went um, and started pestering uh, the people at uh, Course Health. Uh, so that's a research group in in Norway. Um, I thought their ideas were very very interesting, and um, yeah, ended up uh, partnering with them. So uh, now I now we do a whole bunch of education around. Um, their thoughts and ideas about how pain injury um, things occur in the body.
0: Okay. So um, when you were going through that,
1: I guess, year by year
0: and not feel like you don't know enough, we're also seeing like, maybe um, there's a higher level of education or better way to communicate to certain people, or you're just finding like missing gaps into how you were trying to explain things to patients. Like where did that curiosity
1: generate from? I think there's always a, a curiosity uh, deep down to sort of really figure out how things work. Um, you know, if I'm going to provide a treatment, if I'm going to, you know, provide a diagnosis, I'm going to do anything to someone I want to know that I'm doing the right thing and that I'm not missing anything. And so there's just, there's so much to know when you're just like, I just want to know as much as I possibly can to do the best job I can. And I guess what, what I sort of realized, and, and this is sort of um, where sort of cause health came in is that it really sort of challenged this idea that that we know everything and it actually sort of cause health's work really sort of challenges a lot of the assumptions that we take uh into our understanding of the human body and our role as clinicians and and what exactly that we do so we always used to think that you know there was a cause a complete cause and effect there was one thing that we'd find um and if we just knew what that is and we could diagnose that we could get rid of it everything would be okay and it's a little bit more complicated than that so yeah it's that's sort of where i ended up at, at the end of the road is sort of realizing you can't know everything but you also don't need to it's it's we've got to challenge the way that we look at the human body and that's sort of where we find the best answers and the things to keep people you know running moving jumping injury free is sort of when we sort of let go of this um, and you see the things all the time. There's this one trick that that will solve all your problems. It's like it's a lot more complicated that. And if we understand a bit more nuance, we throw away some some ideas that we know are no longer useful. We can uh, we can do a lot better.
0: Okay, I'm trying to put myself in the mind of someone who hasn't been trained in health science, and mm-hmm. they think that okay, plantar fasciitis is plantar fasciitis, like um, patellofemoral pain is patellofemoral pain. It's the It's one diagnosis, it's one kind of presentation and there should be, um, okay, I have this, what should I do for treatment? So if we're talking about cause health, causality and around about the the topic of, okay, I have this diagnosis, therefore let's just follow the, there should be like one cause for this one diagnosis. So let's follow this treatment path. Um, How would you explain to a patient the causality, the complex nature of causality, and why there isn't just one one
1: cause to one injury. Yeah, yeah, very very good question. I think what what one of the assumptions that we have, which you hit um, straight away, was that you know we're looking at if you have one injury, one process, one something happen, that there's a direct um, cause to it. So something that that has so it sort of goes from this. Then this, then that. So there's always just a direct relationship. So a good example, uh, well, because there's lots of actual examples where that's the case. Um, or that it appears to be the case, I would say. So let's say that you, you know, trip over and you twist your ankle and you break, you break your your, your ankle. And you kind of go, well, yeah, that that was a direct cause between I tripped, I fell, and it was actually the fall that physically broke my ankle. And, and you can't argue with that. That is the major event. But when we dig a little deeper, we start to go, well, what's the difference between, let's say, a little old lady twisting her ankle and breaking it and an elite athlete running um, down, let's say, a rugby, uh, a rugby field and accidentally twisting her ankle and breaking it. And we start to realize that there's a little bit more going on that leads into that. So for the little old lady, it might be the fact that poor vision, um, low muscle strength. Um, she's got a lot of, um, bone mineral density issues. So she's more prone to breaking her ankles. So a smaller force, uh, would actually cause it to break rather than a larger force. Um, so we start to sort of pile on a lot of these sort of things that go, these are all the things that led up to that ankle. Twisting and then breaking, and then when we look at the uh, the elite athlete, it's it's a case of well, actually, they might were they overtraining, were they um, fatigued, and that sort of led to the misstep. Was there something happening on the field that made them that took their attention away from where they were placing their feet? Was there actually someone that they tripped over? So did someone actually try and tackle them, clip them a little bit, and that's what caused them to then twist their ankles. So if we're thinking about understanding how an injury occurs and therefore how to prevent it, we start to see there's a little bit more going on. And so we, we know this in, in uh, ACL research is probably the, the best one is that we see depending on the sport and depending upon the individual, there's lots of different factors that go into why someone injures their ACL. And therefore, if we want to prevent it, it has to be sport and individual um, treatments. It can't be that one thing. So if someone's going, I have, you know, patellofemoral pain, I have plantar fasciitis, they have this specific diagnosis. There are specific specific things that we can say that we can follow through um, in that sort of cause and effect. So overtraining is a sort of a classic one. Um, There are some things that we can identify and say, this is the thing that you need to change um, to either get better or to stop this happening in the future. But it's not a blanket uh, thing that we can say for, everyone. Um, We can't just say, well, if you have this pain, then it's always about overtraining. Or If you have this pain, it's always about a lack of strength. There's many different ways that injury occurs. So the example I often give as well, it's a bit more uh, outside of sport is, is a match. Um, If you take a box of matches and you light the match, you would expect the match to light up. Uh, And then you do that again in another scenario and it doesn't light up and you go, well, hold on a second. I struck the match. That's that sort of event that you're seeing of twisting the ankle or landing funny and doing the ACL. But realistically, there's a lot of other things going on. Um, There's oxygen in the air. There's the fact that your matches and the the Flint are dry. Um, So those are the sorts of things that we just assume um, are the same, but they're not. And so if you're going to try and light a match in one scenario, you have to take into account things you can control, which is going to be, did you keep the matchbox dry? But there's also, and this is sort of where we get to with course health as work is that they, they kind of look at and they say, there's going to be some things we can't control. Um, There's going to be some things like, is there enough oxygen in the air? We can't, Often change that, And so when we, we sort of translate that to a sport environment, there are going to be things that we can't change. And by doing any sort of exercise or activity, there is a risk involved that we can't control. And I think there's that level of an uncertainty that that adds, which we're not really comfortable with. Uh, and I definitely wasn't comfortable with as a, as a clinician. All of a sudden, you know, you want to know everything and you want to prevent everything, but really there's an inherent risk. And we have to sort of get a little bit better at tolerating that. And that's more of a cultural issue because we're sort of sold when we're in a culture of we can control everything when in reality, it's an illusion of control. That being said, it's not a case of, Oh, well, you're going to get injured off, off, you know, throw caution to the wind. There's definitely lots of things that we can do that um, aren't always addressing cause and effect. So it's not always a case of, oh, you know, you're at risk of this injury um, and here's the things that we can't control. Therefore, you know, what, what are we doing? It's a case of, well, actually, there's a lot of other things that might have nothing specifically to do with that injury, for example. And this is where strength training sort of often comes in. So we say it's, it's not a perfect injury prevention. It's not a perfect treatment. It's sort of this in-between where we go, you know, we can't control if someone's going to, you know, come out of left field and tackle the rugby player. We can't control... Um, always, um, when we are thinking about running specifically the tracks, we're always going to be able to run on the fatigue, Are you know, for having a bad night's sleep, but we still need to run. But what we can do is do things like get you stronger, um, train in, 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 a certain way that builds your capacity. So you have more tolerance for when these things that we can't control occur. Well said, well put. Um, so where we're
0: at the moment, so if a runner comes, goes into see a clinician and they're injured, they're looking for a cause. What we, what you're currently explaining, what we currently know is there's so many factors at play, there's so many different intensities, there's so many different, yeah, causes that could happen. But then you're also talking about the athlete itself or the the runner themselves, the individual can be so different that the combination of the two, like, just leads with, to such a unique presentation that it's so tough to, like... I guess, predict, or it's so tough to, I guess, assess as just a cookie cutter, like one, one sort of um, movement path, one sort of assessment path, one sort of treatment path for everyone. Um, the factors is there are just too multidimensional to actually come up with that. But if I am putting my clinician hat on now, I remember when I was working in clinics, when I'd have someone who is injured and comes in, It was almost like my job to find the cause. It was almost my job to try and fit this pattern and it all to make sense. And then once I did that, I was trying to like um, fit all these pieces. And if I could find some sort of connection there, then I've done my job because I've like reassured the the runner. This is because you've done this and therefore you feel this way. Therefore, this is how we should place or how we should position our treatment. Um, Should we be okay with... Um, not understanding all the complexities and just moving forward through treatment. Like, is there any dangers in not finding a cause?
1: Yeah. So there's, there's a few things um, I think when, uh, and especially cause I try and teach this to clinicians and it's, it's hard because there's also like, there's a lot of these sort of fears and I think some of them are very well founded in the sense that, so if someone comes in, there are things that you can't miss as a clinician, that you should be very, very well aware of what we call red flags. So things that indicate a serious pathology might be present, things you can't miss. So um, that's number one. So when someone's coming in and we're not giving, uh, you know, I, I'm not always communicating a diagnosis or not being very firm in exactly what we think it is. We've we should have gone through the process um, of saying, no, but it's definitely not these serious things or it's not sounding like this. And if I have an inkling and I'm seeing a pattern of these factors, I will be referring for imaging or I will be referring for a special, uh, for a second opinion to go, this needs to be checked first. It's generally when we're looking at um, more of these sort of, cr- you know, chronic or sort of slow onset sort of injuries. So things aren't invo- involved with a trauma. Um, so yeah non-traumatic injuries that we sort of look at and we can go well they're slow onset they're not serious these are the sorts of ones that where there's a lot more complexity going but i think there's also this sort of misnomer of oh we are not doing your job or you know this this clinician hasn't done their job um when really the flip side of understanding this is that number one we get so many different ways Well, when we understand the human body there's so many different ways to get an injury you there's also by that same token, so many ways to get better. So there's not one pathway. So coming in all of a sudden, it's very freeing for me because I can go, well, um, you know, this person has overtrained um, and they've developed this injury. That's what I'm sort of getting a picture of or understanding a pattern. And so how do we get this person potentially, Well, I I think at least at the start, one of the things we should try is um, more recovery, um, but how do we keep that person fit? And so we could do just reduce the volume. We could reduce the intensity. We could um, just um, cut out maybe one run and swap it for another activity. I can work with the athlete to then go, how can we keep your fitness up? How can we do all of this, but, but take load off this tissue? We can gate retrain. We can you know, get them in the gym and doing, you know, changing their gym exercises so they don't, for example, patella femoral pain. There's a bunch of exercises that don't put as much patella compression on. And we, I can work with someone and go, well, you know, it's not the fact that you are broken and we need to completely rest this or um, not broken and you just need to keep going as usual. It's a case of, well, I can work with you to figure out what's a plan that's going to work for you specifically based upon this idea of I've just got to maybe figure out which one I think is going to work, um, you know, for you or, and for your condition. So volume, intensity, frequency, all of these sorts of uh, parameters that I get to change your run or your gym session with as well as specific therapies as well so telofemoral pain might be strengthening and orthotics for plantar fasciitis it might be stretching and taping you know there's there's a lot of other things that we can do um or there's things that we know that will directly help it i think the other sort of thing is to say though well, you know when we especially with clinicians they sort of go well so is you know is all bets off can we can we do anything and it's like no 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 there's also patents and the idea is that we know that when someone comes in um, in a certain age group, in a certain sort of uh, sport uh, with a certain condition, that there's generally patterns of things that we see um, and patterns as well for management. So if we're thinking about an adolescent with patellofemoral pain syndrome, uh, taping and some reassurance might be enough because we know that it's potentially to do with more growth when we see someone who's an adult they're running heaps and they're not strength training at all it might be a combination of pulling back the running for a bit strength training a bit of gait retraining to help keep them running and then build it back up so immediately we we can see these patterns that we can that we can use and then we can sort of use that that understanding to customize so i think this sort of approach is Very freeing and very, very helpful because it would absolutely suck if you were a runner. And and I see this a lot. People come in, they go, you're going to tell me to stop running. And I go, I don't need to. I've got all of this lovely, wonderful stuff, these knobs and dials that I can adjust to help you. And here's the thing is that if I do all of that and then I go and you come back and go, it's a bit better, but it's not great. I've then got all this information about you and your response to that initial treatment. And then I can use that to help adjust my differential diagnosis. So what I think's going on and I can use that to adjust how I do my treatment rather than cookie cutter. Here's your orthotic. Here's your taping. Here's your stretching. It didn't work great. So now you have to stop running or now you have to do this. And it's a case of, well, you know, every study tells us everyone is different. Everyone responds differently. We just average it all out. Uh, and say, this is the result because we like one number. Um, But realistically, when we look at any sort of study, we see everyone's response different. And we don't exactly have enough research to understand why their results are different. And that doesn't mean we can't look at our athlete, our our patient as an individual, and they say, this is how I responded. And we go, okay, let's take that into into account and, and figure out. So sometimes it will take me three, four sessions before I'm really confident exactly what's going on each step of the way that I know there's something that I can do and there's something that I should be trying. And there's something that I can be doing that, that, that can work for that person. And if it doesn't work, it allows me to understand them and make a treatment plan that does.
0: If well, it can be very freeing, like you were saying, and I know position myself as a runner, if someone's injured, they're hoping for to go to a clinician and they say, this is the cause of your injury. It's because you changed your footwear to a... Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Roughly, now you have this pain or... You've overdone it. You've um, increased running mileage too abruptly. This is why you're injured. This is your diagnosis. This is the treatment. Like, it'd be nice if everyone could fit into that and everyone would be nice and reassured. They say, yes, I've got the plan. I know all the answers. Um, This is what I need to do. But that's not what happens. That's not how life works. But And what confuses runners is if they see multiple clinicians, there's different answers people say oh no you have knee pain because your footwear oh no you have knee pain because you're changing mileage oh no you have foot pain or you have knee pain because your quads are too tight your ITB is too tight you have weakness tightness in all these different muscles and you get a whole bunch of different opinions from different conditions which um, muddies the water and then you're like well if no one if no one can really give me a straight answer how do we know what to do for treatment But what you're saying is it's actually quite freeing because yes, there are so many complexities to the cause and so many different conditions can make those connections, but the treatment can be quite freeing because there is a lot we can do no matter what the cause was. There's a lot that we can do that you can um, just, like you say, adjust those knobs, turn the dials and see how you fare with that management plan. And if you're faring quite well, then we know that what we're doing is working and we just keep moving forward. So um, I guess it kind of highlights that is freeing that we don't necessarily need to know the exact causes or the links between what's generated injury. We can follow patterns. We can follow um, you know, patterns that we see time in, time out through um, being clinician for years and years. But we can also kind of fit a pattern around Symptoms around how they respond to treatment, and if they respond well through the, like a little bit of strengthening, then more strengthening and progressing that strengthening should be able to, you know, follow that rehab path. Um, would you agree with that? Would you say that that's the, um, I guess, the reassuring side of things or the freeing side of things when it comes to treatment?
1: Yeah, I I, I I would agree. I guess the thing is though, when I think about it, there's still a lot of people that will come to see me and still have that experience of Mm. they come in and they've told me the whole story and and so really what 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 i'm giving and sort of what i'm talking about is really sort of a look under the hood of how i think how um we know the research is telling us clinicians should operate but there's lots of people that come in and i ask all the questions i do all the things and i'm putting this all together in my head and you know there's lots of patients that will go look what do i do and you know not everyone wants to know under the hood not everyone needs to know under the hood is, is really the thing that we actually know from research you know there was a lot of research of understanding pain and there was this whole thought of ah, if we understand pain if everyone understands pain then it's going to be really helpful and the answer was not really um So there are still lots of people that come in that we ask all these questions that we set everything up. And this is the map I'm I'm putting in my head. But then, you know, when it comes down to the crunch, we say, okay, so they say, what am I going to do? I'm leaving here now. I need a plan. We write down, okay, what we're going to do to start with is we're going to change your shoes. Now, nice and simple. You need a new pair of shoes. Here's the shoes that we're going to get that I think are going to be better. Here's how you're going to wear them in. Here is your running plan you know, now the, here's what the adjustments that you're going to make. And then here's your new gym program that we're going to start. So people sort of still do leave with a plan. And it's, it's, I think that's the the misunderstanding when we start adopting this is that we can still go in with a problem, still go in and get a diagnosis. And we say, well, look, I, I think it's, First of all, I don't think it's bad. Second of all, um, so it's not a serious pathology. Second, I'm pretty sure it's, you know, patellofemoral pain syndrome as as a, you know, really common example. And from what you've told me about all your training and all these things, these are the the patterns that I know. And here's where I think we're going to start so that people get the same experience um, or can get the same experience. And it's, it's more to really talk about this is, uh, and sort of introduce these ideas and where I start to explain to patients is usually when they come in and they've seen multiple clinicians and they go, which one of these, what am I supposed to do? And I sort of um, do the, you know, Por lo You know why, not, why is it not all of them? Why is it not both? Um, you know, is it my glutes? Is it my this? Is it my that? And it's like, well, it could be all of these are contributing. We've just got to figure out what we're doing because doing one at a time is not enough. or or just addressing one at a time, we might need to have a more detailed plan for your specific injury. And we might, you know, in some cases when things persist, we might need to look outside of that specific area as well. We might look at sleep. We might look at diet. We might look at, you know, do, you know, some people we have to have the hard chat and say, well, look, you're trying to fit in this much running and this much gym with this work, you know, that's taking up your life with this much stress with this much sort of family sort of stuff going on. There's a level of, you know, is your body able to recover enough from all, everything that you're doing? And sometimes we, we have that discussion because we know you might be doing everything correctly. And this is, you know, when we talk about, you know, this understanding of complexity, the environment that we're in, all of these factors outside exactly what's happening. And it might just be the fact that they're just not, you know, doing everything normally and can't just not able to recover because of stress all these sorts of things affecting their life and that's probably something that i see a lot um with well a lot for people who come in confused because they go i've done everything like i normally do, done now i've got an injury and we sort of go well what else has changed in your life and it's like i've got a stressful job you know now i've got a kid now i got a family now i've got a dog now i've got a mortgage um and all of these things are stressful but the training remained constant and it's like well your training needs to change because of all of these other things that are going on now not to freak sort of anyone out you know because that's out of the percentage of runners um that i see how many of those people do i have to have that hard chat with thankfully not many but it's in the back of our back of my mind that you know that's the sorts of things that i think about that if someone isn't spending time recovering um, and they can't change it That's how I'm setting my plans. That's how I'm thinking about one doing what on what day. So that's in the back of my mind. That's a thought process that I'm having. And that's sort of the problem when we get cookie cutter plans and clinicians that aren't thinking about that. And, 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 you know, we aren't educating us to say, these are the questions that you should be asking to determine if your clinician is doing it or not. Um, Yeah, that's, that's what's sort of going in under the hood. And so it sort of can help people. I think if people understand and they want to know a bit more what's going on under the hood, that that can be quite helpful at sort of getting over those common misconceptions and ideas or or issues. Okay. Well, uh, let me pose this one to you. Mm -hmm. How important is a diagnosis?
0: How important is having that label for the clinician and also for the runner coming in with pain and knowing that there's, multiple things that could lead to this pain presentation they currently have, how important is it that they have a label attached to it?
1: For a clinician, um, I don't think it's incredibly important. There's there's a lot of research and a lot of papers sort of showing that um, when we have a diagnosis, it doesn't actually tell us a lot about recovery. It doesn't tell us a lot about exactly how to treat it. Um, a diagnosis is essentially a pattern of um a pattern of symptoms and things that we know consistently uh, match with this type of injury. Um, and you know we've even got a lot of sort of studies showing that that imaging in, in certain circumstances is not incredibly reliable. Um, so we see lots of tissue changes that, uh, can occur quite naturally, you know, sort of like a slight wearing down of a tire or a, uh, you know, bark on a tree. You know, they're, they're things that we expect to see of some of people of certain ages and, and, and certain histories and certain sports. So for a clinician, it's not always incredibly important for me to have a diagnosis. If I'm doing my due diligence, I'm ruling things in and out because there are some times where diagnosis is incredibly important for patients I think it's, I I do think it's important to communicate a diagnosis um, just simply because it's helpful. I mean, number one, we're taught, go in and get a diagnosis. It's, It's illustrating that we've done a thought process. It's illustrating that we are thinking about it. And often we will reach a differential diagnosis. The difference is between me and potentially someone else is that I don't hang my hat on it and I don't make all my decisions based on that diagnosis. So I'll still have one. Um, And and I still do communicate, and I go, you know, I but I'm I'm not committed to it. I'm not saying that this is what it is because if I get new information, I want to be able to go. Well, actually, I think I don't think the diagnosis fits anymore now that I've got this new information. Because I I my my appointments are one hour for an initial, so they're quite long, for um compared to to many others. But even then, I've only got an hour with you. You know, I don't I'm not able to get all this information that I can be 100% certain. I have enough information that, that I will tell people, well, it's definitely not something incredibly serious. That's not what I'm suspicious of. Or if I am, you're off for a scan or you're off for a second opinion. Um, but this is sort of where I'm thinking it's coming from. This is sort of what I'm thinking it is. And here's all of these sort of things that we're going to do to sort of test my hypothesis. Um, and at the same time, if it's helpful, then you've, we've started your treatment journey. If it's not helpful, um, we, we go back, we have a chat about, you know, what happened and why, and we figure out is this a um, response that tells me, uh, you know, my, I might've been wrong um, and I've got this more information to update my diagnosis. Or does it tell me that, okay, no, this is, this does sound like the diagnosis. I've seen this before. It's just that this treatment is, or this management sort of strategy is not working for you. And we're going to, we're going to workshop that. Yeah. I like how you say that a diagnosis,
0: all the diagnosis is just a a pattern of symptoms, a collection of symptoms that sort of fit the mold. And I was talking to in Griffiths last week around um, plantar fasciitis and, saying like, I've seen so many before, but not all of the same. Like you can get that pain under the heel, but, and you can say, okay, I'm quite confident this is plantar fasciitis, but then there's some other things like there's 10 to 20% of symptoms that just don't make sense. It's like, oh, but I also get like burning or like radiating symptoms further up the shin or like further down to the toes, which isn't that classic. And you're like, okay, well, most of what you're describing seems to be plantar fasciitis, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that doesn't really fit the pattern. So, well, diagnoses-wise, like we can say it's plantar fasciitis, but who knows how you respond to a classic plantar fasciitis treatment? So, so, levels of severities and like durations, and like you say, dealing with the individual themselves, dealing with stresses, dealing with diet, dealing with sleep—all these sort of factors just get thrown in to create a totally different presentation, and. What we, we know, I've done several episodes on pain science before, someone's experience, someone's interpretation, someone's alertness, hypervigilance towards a certain injury can just create a different pain experience, like to, you know, more widespread or more severe or more irritable. So this becomes super, super tricky. And when we're talking about a treatment after that, we have to take in all of those factors um, so that the the plan is just molding to the individual rather than the rather than that little sort of thing. So when it comes to a treatment path, should, what should a runner keep in consideration? Should we um, be asking other people what their pain experience is like, or what's worked for them, or should we just
1: follow a clinician, follow second opinions? What's a, a good, what's a good cause for that? I'd probably hijack this a little bit and just say before i jump to before we jump to, to treatment i'd probably um, just jump on your point about the symptoms matching um, or not matching a uh, a presentation um, because of course health does spend a lot of it has a whole chapter in their book on what they call medically unexplained symptoms and we're finding that like 50 percent of the symptoms people see we can't match to a specific condition or it has so much overlap with other conditions like think about a headache you know, it's a very non-specific symptom and it's like, well, that could be a brain tumor or it could be stress um, or it could be dehydration. And there's this vast sort of difference. So when we're dealing with symptoms, I mean, I always think about heart attack in women, you know, the, the reason why we don't pick up heart attacks in, in women a lot more is because when we studied heart attacks, originally we only studied men. And so really a lot of our diagnoses just come from observing lots of people uh, and then sort of trying to spend a lot of time deducing exactly where those symptoms come from. And realistically, you know, there's so many, like we said, overlapping symptoms that it's hard to, to do that. So a, a sort of a classic sort of example of um, uh, this, this situation is I had a patient come in the other day, plan a heel pain is what we ended up having, but she had all these neural symptoms exactly like you described. And I was going, well, I don't know what's going on, but we scanned her. Um, we found that it was just a really irritated plantar fascial was the main finding, and then we said, "Well, let's just start treating it like plantar, like a plantar fascial injury. Let's see what happens." And she got a lot better, and but it was good. We rolled out the red flags. We saw some red flags and said, "Oh, this might be a neural injury. Let's let's check it out." We stepped through the process. She got better, um, but it was it sort of comes from this idea that someone's broken and we need to fix them. And the only way to fix them is a treatment when realistically, if we start managing someone um, doing the things that we know we can do and could be helpful, does the body start to sort of sort itself out in a way? Because the body is healing, body is adaptable. And so I think that's sort of the the way I would explain it is that we can definitely get you into a better place. So can you respond better to other treatments? Do certain things just disappear? So if someone's, you know, if someone's got plantar fasciitis and they're walking on the outside of their foot and they're developing a perineal injury. So attended on the outside of their foot and to get sore. I don't try and treat both. I just say, well, let's, what's the keystone one that we can start with that will then potentially solve the other problems naturally. Um, So we, that's sort of why I sort of look at diagnosis, not always being um, incredibly important because it, you know, if we diagnose that person with, you know, a perineal injury and a plantar fascial injury. They're two completely different treatments or two similar treatments, but it would involve doing a lot more that would make no difference to the person. Um, So that's sort of where we come in. Yeah. It makes me think of when I was working
0: in clinics, I saw a ton of low back pain. It was, I probably saw maybe three or four patients a day, new patients with low back pain. And I would have seen thousands in the eight to 10 years I was working in clinics and I still had no idea. Like if someone came in with a certain presentation, they had low back pain and we got them to do certain movements, certain tests, to have a feel around, I would still have no idea how they would respond to treatment based on their pattern of symptoms until I actually started some treatment. started a little bit of treatment, see how they responded and then did more of that treatment. And it just goes to show this, like when it comes, especially around low back pain, there's so many things that could happen and they've actually got to they've labelled more than 80% of people with low well, back pain as non-specific low back pain. And it's just a diagnosis that they've decided to label saying, okay, we don't know exactly what's going on structurally, everything's fine, but they still have back pain. Um, so we'll just label them as non-specific, And this is what we should encourage. We should encourage movement. We should encourage strength. We should reassure them, educate them, you know, avoid bed rest, all this sort of stuff, which is just very... Very fluffy, but they get better. But there's no real specific stuff um, when it comes to a diagnosis. And like you say, when some some very common running conditions like patellofemoral pain could overlap or could deviate from its very classic presentation, and then you could have a an overlap of two types of things. Maybe it could be ITB syndrome. Maybe it could be a combination of things because everyone's presentation is so so different. So. Um, rather than the runner feeling like becoming fearful, or becoming worried or being confused with all of these um, different diagnoses or different presentations or not fitting a classic thing like they're reading what patellofemoral pain should fit. Maybe it's it's reassuring for them to know this is normal. It's normal for there to be different symptoms. It's totally normal for there to be um, not this classic treatment or maybe not respond to a classic treatment and then just try something else. And as long as they're, Um, as long as they are responding, if they're not responding, try something different, but if they are responding, then Mm. be reassured with that and continue along that treatment path. Would you agree?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's definitely the case. And I mean, when we look at most studies as well, we average results. Uh, I mentioned it before. And so, you know, whenever we do a treatment, there's always going to be 20, 30% of people that don't get better or don't get as much better. And we're really bad at, um, communicating that and saying, well, look, there are, you know, people who aren't going to respond. But when we look at example, example, you know, you know, opening up the can of worms, that is low back pain. Um, you know, we see people that can respond to yoga. We see people respond to Pilates. We see people respond to strengthening. We see people respond to, um, uh, you know, it's very, very specific um, retraining, you know, core muscles and things we see all of these things be helpful. So it, it sort of tells us well, we can, we get a choice of a lot of the things that we can do. But when we sort of talk about something being non-specific, there is still a specific cause. There is still something specific happening. The The issue is, is what we're identifying by saying it's non-specific is we have no tests or ideas to be able to identify it but also the fact is that that being on a non-specific diagnosis means we're also not at risk of having a problem if we miss something so we know non-specific low back pain you know doesn't mean that we have a fracture or something that's going to get worse and they're going to become crippled Um, you know we've we've become very good at identifying those serious pathologies so being non-specific really means that, that the field is unfortunately a bit more open, which is a good thing in terms of treatment choice, but it's a bad thing when we find things aren't working for someone because something specific is still happening. And that's where I sort of switch from more of a clinician mode to a coach mode, where the idea is, is I'm not um, above the person saying you need to do this, you need to do that. I'm sort of spending a lot more time coaching people through and saying, okay, if this happened, what what do you think we should do? How's this going to fit? How about when we change this? What are you experiencing when we do these movements or these treatments? And we're really just trying to coach someone through. And so, having had a patient who, and actually have uh, done some interviews with this patient that are available publicly, um, who went through this process with patellofemoral pain of seeing all these different clinicians, getting all these different diagnoses, doing all these different things, he was a classic sort of person that didn't fit the mold of the normal cl- of normal responses. Was going to everyone, ended up very confused. And really, what the biggest difference was was having someone who was more of a coach, someone who was going to come alongside him and go, okay. I'm here. We're going to figure this out. I don't know what it is. I don't know what what you respond to, but let's create a plan for you. Let's be alongside you. Let's build you back up. Let's figure out what we can do for your life. And so his big thing was rugby. And so he wanted to get back to rugby. So he made a plan and said, well, these are the things that you need to definitely do to get back to rugby. Will they help your knee? Maybe. Will they not, you know, will they um, do you any harm? Absolutely not. It's going to help you get towards your goal. And in that sort of process, we went backwards and forwards and we essentially just built him back up. Now he's playing rugby and he's doing well. But with his experience, I'm still the coach. I'm still going, you know, he still checks in every now and then. He still wants to come in and talk about the experience. And, you know, it's got nothing to do with diagnosis. It's got nothing to do with me having to treat. It's a case of, well, we still don't exactly know what's going on. And it's just become a process of, well, you know, we're going to check in and and keep making sure you're on the straight and narrow. Feel free to
0: repeat yourself because I know we've talked about it several times already but simplistically put why is why does someone respond differently to treatment why would if we follow say the evidence shows that with people with plantar fasciitis stretching strengthening orthotics helps let's follow that with all of our plantar fasciitis patients why do why is treatment
1: so different why is the impact so different between people so we could look at lots of different things. So it could be um, the fact that when they do an exercise, they take longer to recover. So we know, and it's more in tendons than in fascia, but we know tendons in some people take up to 72 hours to completely recover from a bout of exercise. Some people as little as 24 hours. So if we're doing a set of exercises and we're doing quite heavy and then they're doing that in a usual sort of uh, two days, so 48 hours after they start again, or maybe only 36 um, we might not have that time for them to completely have recovered from that previous bout of exercise. They haven't responded, they haven't gotten stronger, and then we're adding more on. So they're in a fatigued state, we're not a perfect state for them to then benefit from it. So the exercises might actually provide no benefit. There can be factors like if someone is on their feet all day working and moving, that can be a lot of volume and load already. So if we give the same treatment plan of set amount of calf raises at a set intensity, we're adding it on top of load throughout the day. So there's also that other factor of what are they doing throughout the day. There's lots of genetic factors uh, as well in terms of how people respond to injuries. Um, There's a lot of things about, you know, diet and recovery that we don't completely understand how important that they are need to change often not. Um, but they may have an impact on why someone responds better than others. Um, there's the sport that people play, the movements that they do. Um, so, you know, it's harder to avoid certain movements in certain sports and activities. It's easier in others. So, um, you know, when someone is sore, um, if you are, for example, having a really sore knee and, you know, you are playing, you know, rugby, and I keep going back to rugby because it's it's the sport that I work in at the moment. But if we're thinking, you know, I'm seeing someone in a scrum, you know, they have to be in that position. They have to be loaded in a certain way for their position in in the scrum. And so if they continually... Keep doing that on top of everything else. That may also impact it. Where uh, you know other sports and you know people might continue to keep playing or might be able to continue to keep running, because as they're moving, they're subconsciously able to adjust their gait or they're running or they're walking or however they're moving, to offload that 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 area. That's why we limp um, and we can limp unconsciously. So there's lots and lots of things going on, and this is sort of our role as a clinician to try and understand get this information out of patients and understand it as best we can and put together a picture of why someone may or may not respond um, but the unfortunately, the, sh- the short answer is is that we don't know and a big problem is because in the research we have not embrace this understanding of how the human body works. And we've only really looked at one or two things and excluded everything else, assuming that they're all the same. So, you know, going back to the matchbox example in the research, we've just focused on the match in the box. We haven't focused on the oxygen, the environment, all the other things that would affect whether that we're actually going to get a, a lit match and a fire. This would be a nice segue because um, I know cause health, like you say, they, they challenge
0: assumptions. And in the past couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, I've um, tried to assess my own bias towards treatment and my own limitations. And I think what I've done, especially around this podcast, is focus too heavily on the evidence based stuff and like focus too much on avoiding things that isn't evidence based. Like if um, someone comes in, and they have pain, they say, oh, I've been phone rolling my ITV, should I continue doing that? I say, Well, it's not doing anything. Um, you're better off doing something um, that's evidence based. But I recognize that because someone is so individual and we're dealing with the brain, we're dealing with beliefs, we're dealing with like any individual unique circumstances um, <clears throat> that maybe I'm too fixated, too rigid towards just following the evidence. So um, one thing that caught my attention when I was listening to you on prior episodes or on different podcasts was talking about the limitations around evidence and um what, like, say, RCTs, why they're, they're quite limiting. Do you want to maybe just, um, I guess, help broaden my perspective of things and making sure that I'm not just focusing on um, the pure evidence side of things and why we should be broadening our, our horizons a
1: little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is, we can go down a rabbit hole here, but I, I can keep it very sort of sort of basic um so because realistically the foundations of evidence are really basic you know if we have a study essentially what we're doing is and let's take a randomized controlled trial this is just a um a very very controlled study so we control a lot of factors so we, so we let's say we take a whole group of runners we split them into two groups and we make sure that the groups are roughly on average the same a bunch a whole bunch of factors um, so we look. So we're assuming that yes, they're all sort of roughly the same. We then give uh, one a, for example, for a for a trial with a placebo. We're giving one a uh, a real treatment and one a placebo, and uh, we see how that treatment goes, and then we compare them. And what we're sort of trying to say is we're looking at and going, well, we got these two groups of runners. They're very very similar, so we're assuming they're the same, and we're saying these people we gave a treatment, these people we gave a placebo, these people got. Uh, better. These people got 20% better. So the treatment effect, the specific sort of effect of the treatment is 30%, for example, of that improvement. So we can say, yeah, these people improved more. This treatment is evidence-based is essentially what we're saying. But the issue is, is that we're averaging. We're making lots of assumptions. We're saying, well, first of all, these two groups of different runners. We're assuming because they look similar that they are similar on a chemical level, um, on a tissue level, and we can't say that. Um, and partially because we we can't possibly measure every single factor. We're not going to get a blood test on everyone that does a that enters a patellofemoral pain study. We're not. We can't control to that level. But the idea was that if we got people that looked the same, it's essentially like being able to have one person come into the clinic and have that exact same person do the treatment and not do the treatment. Um, the, The other thing is that we average the results, as I've said before. So there's lots of people in the group that would do really well. And there's some people in the group that would do poorly. We've got studies that show that when we break out that, that average and we actually look at individuals, everyone responds quite differently. Um, So there's a fantastic study that shows that, you know, out of 10 individuals, no one followed the average of no effect. Some people got better, some people got worse, but the average was almost zero. Um, So, you know, we can look at this treatment and go, wow, you know, no one got better from this treatment, but actually a whole bunch of people got better and a whole bunch of people got worse. We just missed that. So when we're talking about things that are, that are evidence-based, we've, we've got to keep in mind that that's what's happening. So for an individual, if they're coming in and saying, you know, I did this treatment and I got worse, that's irrefutable. We can't, you know, often the old viewers, but the evidence says you should, you, you know, people get better with this. So you must've done something wrong. And it's like, no, we know that, you know, if with a lot of treatments, two, three out of 10 will not get better. And so we've got to take that information. We've got to look at that and go, well, okay, so what else can we do? And when we're not looking for that one right answer, we go, we've got all of these other answers. We go and we find something that, that you know we think may work. Or if we try and understand about and, and ask questions and, and work through potentially why that didn't work for them, we can start to, to be able to guide people better. So from an evidence-based perspective, um, that's kind of the issue that we have. Um, those are sort of the assumptions that we're taking in. But also the fact is that we just don't have a lot of evidence. You know, when we look at plantar fascia and strengthening, we actually don't have that much evidence. We have heaps of evidence though for shockwave because it's really easy to put a shockwave machine on someone and, you know, pound, pound the, the fascia and then go, did you get better? So there's this, also this lack of information as well. And so there's a, there's a great quote by Professor Roger Kerry. Um, uh, when I was talking to him, he, he pretty much just said, you know, you can be evidence-based by just being having a systematic process being systematic in your thought processes is being evidence-based so if someone comes in and we think about well we actually have no evidence for this condition or this person or or this setup what can we do well we just have to be systematic in how we approach and not sort of and that's where i think a lot of Patients go wrong or get or not so much they go wrong, but they sort of get directed in the wrong way is because everyone's sort of going, go here and do this, go here and do that, do this now. And it's this focus on what's that one switch we can flip that will then solve all their problems when it's a case of, but how are we building this person towards their goals? How is what they're doing for a, what they're given as a treatment? How does that fit with them? How does that fit with their life? How does that fit with the goal of running more or running faster? or? Um, You know, just being able to run pain-free, how does that fit in and what are we doing to their body? Because when we start to just search for that switch flip, we're often then with the treatments, just throwing things, you know, throwing spaghetti at the window and and seeing what sticks rather than saying, okay, you know, I have someone that I'm starting to figure out how we're going to get them back running. Great. So what are we going to do? Well, I'm going to give them a strength program because they haven't been running in four months, five months. Um, They want to get back running. Great. So they need some base level strength. They need to start doing some exercise. Here's some exercises. Will it solve their problem? I don't know. Um, But frankly, you know, they need it for their goal. Let's get them exercising. Let's find exercises they can do comfortably and confidently, and let's start building that. So when we start, when we get two, three months down the line and we we have started to get control of their pain, they're back running, they're building up, we've got this base level of strength that we can call upon. Uh, and that's where I see a lot of patients get lost because they're going from one clinician to another, bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. And no one's really going, um, how am I going to guide this person back? They're sort of just going, oh, I'll solve the, I'll solve that problem. I'll try and fix that problem. And and that's ultimately probably the thing that we Know about the body is that we don't fix things. The body is adaptable. The body will help fix things itself to a certain degree. And what we're often doing is help guiding the body into a place or an environment or a, a sort of a, a in, in sort of a position where it can then heal itself the best. So one sort of other way of looking at it is, is treatment and management is sometimes just getting out of the body's way of healing. Um, you know, adjusting. Uh, the load of, you know, how much running someone's doing to essentially then allow the body to, to do its own thing. And then we start rebuilding as, as an example. Alex, I'm going to try and attempt to summarize this whole conversation <laughs> and say,
0: I'll, I'd like your additional comments afterwards. So when we're talking about assessment or like the cause of an injury, once someone is injured, the assessment that is taken and the cause we are they making assumptions in terms of the link of how they got injured? So there could be multiple stories that people tell or multiple opinions from different clinicians, because we're just trying to piece that puzzle together when it comes to a diagnosis. Yes, we can have that label for peace of mind or just like a, a generic kind of template to follow, but there's always going to be some overlap where not everyone will fit a certain thing or not. Everyone does fit that certain pattern. We're only just deviating plus or minuses the, the treatment pattern. So the template plus or minus your individual circumstances. But then when it comes to treatment, it's having that right understanding, having that clinical thinking in mind, but just seeing how the individual responds and then judging the treatment off that. Because we can be evidence-based, we can have the evidence in our mind, but because everyone's so unique and everyone's so individual, let's just try something, see how it goes for a couple of weeks or whatever timeframe makes sense. If it's not working, then we need to try something else. If it is working, then we follow more of that or continue that and then add something else in. And then
1: that's how we kind of formulate that management plan. Any additional comments? No, I think it's a really good summation. I I think the the thing that I would sort of point out, hearing that all sort of summarise, it sort of makes me think of these are all very big, broad level ideas there's lots of specific information that we know so a good example patella femoral pain you want to do a squat to get people stronger there is a range of motion where you will put more patella compression you will get more patella compression and potentially then start to irritate it so there's lots of bits of information and things that are evidence-based within it um, that we can use so it's not all airy fairy it's not all very very fluffy um, it's just about how do we get that information and how do we fit it in well, It might be a case that, you know, someone can just keep doing squatting and despite that patella compression, it doesn't irritate them that much. And you're like, great, but there's some people where we can use that information and say, actually, you're someone I think we need to adjust your technique and give you um, uh, a, a variation of Bulgarian split squat or give you a sissy squat or give you something different to do um around that so yeah we can be i think there's lots of very specific knowledge we have this is broad level level knowledge of saying well how do we apply that knowledge um so yeah there's to sort of get out of the fluffiness yeah um i think in terms of if i'm thinking about what can a runner do with this information what can a um if they're seeing a clinician what, what 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 can they take out of this and i think there's a few things and it just comes down to asking and I think the number one sort of one I ask always ask is, um, or I always say is, you know, any patient has to, has to get their brand out of a consult. And what brand sort of stands for is benefits, risks, alternatives, and uh, what's the consequences of doing nothing. So if you're going to get a treatment, uh, a clinician should be able to answer what the benefits are of, of that treatment is, what are the risks of doing it. Uh, What's the alternatives that people have? So for a classic example is when people go get cortisone, um, especially we think like rotator cuff tears, getting um, cortisone into joints, um, there are risks. And so what are the alternatives that you have? So you're making a full informed decision, but also what's the benefits or risks or just consequences of doing nothing for a bit and letting the body hand try and handle itself because there's lots of conditions that that would have a favorable natural history so an acute flare of low back pain is a classic example six weeks a lot of what we do doesn't make a huge difference our process is really just trying to at the moment best way to manage it is to try and keep you active and then we just set you up and say well so the consequences of doing nothing for this acute flare of, of low back pain um actually you know we can just do nothing, and it's probably pretty okay. Same with sort of sciatica in its early stages. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of sort of uh, things. So I think asking, you know, getting your brand from out of out of a consult, but also sort of focusing on your on your goal and asking a clinician. So this is my goal. How does this treatment fit in, and how am I going to get back to my goal? What other things that could I be doing in addition to this specific treatment for my for my condition that can help me? get back to where to where i want to be or where i get me to where i want to go uh so asking those broad sort of questions because yeah if if your clinician is struggling then you know i i don't like to be derogatory or say things but if you know against certain people but if your clinician is not able to explain these things to you and you're you have a very sort of strict goal of i want to get back to running or i want to start running faster then we do have to ask the question of, is that the right clinician for you? Mm. Um, It's not saying they're a bad clinician, but it's saying, is that the right clinician for what you are wanting to get out of them? So we think about, you know, in my clinic, you know, we have a number of different patients and and we will internally refer to make sure that patient gets to see the clinician that we think is going to work best for them. And we have a variety of different options as well. So one of the few, you know, sort of podiatry, podiatry specific clinics that has, you know, a full gym setup. Um, well, so we have rehab options. We have all these sort of things and we're trying to, to match a, a, a patient with the, the treatment and help them reach their goals. And that's, that's how we do it. Um, and so, you know, we do get a lot of patients that come to us that are specific, you know, we can really help them. But at the same time, you know, there's lots of people out there that don't need that and can do very, very well at other clinics with, um, you know, less stuff, less options. Um, and not this complete understanding of what's going on, and that's that's perfect as well. But yeah, um, if you're struggling, they, these are the things that I would ask. When, that that's
0: perfect. And when when you're laying out that brand, um, the, the info, I was thinking of people with proximal hamstring tendinopathy. I get a ton of people, and they will often talk uh, whether they should have surgery or not surgery. And it's it's strange when people just like post on social media should I get surgery, should I not get surgery and get all these responses back and all these different outcomes. And when it comes down to it, when you talk to your therapist, when you talk to your GP, when you talk to your surgeon, if you just do that, list out that brand, the benefits, risks, alternative, and the cost of doing nothing, what will happen if we do nothing. And if you just lay that out and you get this real candid conversation, this you get all the information out there, then you can make that judgment call yourself. And The other thing I'll add on is make sure that you are happy with the response that you get, because you might ask about the benefits or the risks and a clinician or a surgeon might just rattle off a whole bunch of jargon and a whole bunch of um, stuff that you just, it just doesn't make sense to you, but you just kind of say, Oh yeah. Okay. um, And then just go to your next question. Make sure that you fully understand the response that comes out because a lot of clinicians are, are used to talking in like a certain medical jargon that they either they they'll just confuse you and you just don't want to feel stupid and ask the same question again or try and or ask to please simplify it um i know a lot of people are shy and just say well i asked the question like, okay um just make sure you're really happy with the response and make, make
1: sure that it's okay just to ask the same question several times until you're happy with the response that you get yeah 100 and i think that's I always sort of think is a good clinician is someone that sort of that's able to explain things incredibly well for someone to understand. Like if, if people are able to leave and go, yeah, I completely understand it you know i've taken this complex topic i've taken this really sort of i've been reading heaps but you know my role is to make it simple for someone to be able to walk away with and that's sort of where it comes down to that plan there's all this complexity going on in the background there's all this crazy stuff that i'm thinking but ultimately a patient should leave with a plan that makes sense that's simple that they can follow step by step and it doesn't matter like i don't have to i think that's potentially you know some of it you know, may unfortunately be a bit of ego where they want to go, well, I want to show people that I've got this really complex understanding. And it's kind of like, but that's not the job. That's not what patients need. They're not there to be confused. They're there to get a simple, easy to understand plan. And really, uh, if we can take a whole bunch of really complex stuff and make it really simple. That's actually the better sign of intelligence um, because it shows that you can understand it and you can understand it enough that you can make it simple. If it's, if it's so complicated that you're not seeing the thread through, do you completely understand it?
0: Yeah. i well said,
1: um, Alex, you, you've talked about course
0: health. You've talked about um, podiatry systems. You've talked about drone clinic. What, what links should I leave in the show notes for people to learn more about this and learn more about you? What,
1: what specific links should I include? Yeah, so I, I, I most of my material and stuff is more aimed at, at clinicians, uh, so um, there's that sort of heading. Um, but you can find me. Um, so I have my own blog and website, making sense in podiatry. Um, so you can Google that, um, Facebook search and Instagram search. I've got I've got Instagram and Facebook. Um, we've also got podiatry systems. So we've got, um, so that's the partnership with me and Scott Greenbank where then that's our education business. So that's podiatry systems, um, podiatrysystems.com.au, Facebook and Instagram, and also LinkedIn. Um, Yeah. And then Cause Health is, Cause Health, uh, you can find them on, I think they've got a Twitter account. Uh, I'm pretty sure they don't have a Facebook or an Instagram, but they've got a website. But again, that's, you know, again, more aimed at clinicians. But I think if people really want to understand more about this from a patient's perspective, it might not be everyone's cup of tea because it is more about chronic and persistent pain but christine price who's involved with course health is a she has a fantastic chapter in the book that's really easy to understand the book is open access rethinking causality complexity and evidence for the unique patient and she gives a, a brilliant sort of outline of a uh, uh, how you know, a small holding or like a commune um, can be a good analogy for how things can influence pain and it's the exact same bare bones of you just need to take those those words out and replace them with factors that could be for injury. And it's, and it's really, really similar.
0: Yeah, nice. I think about 10 to 15% of this, um, the people who listen are clinicians or health professionals of some description. So at least they can go to those. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming on, Alex. I think it's very tough to talk about such a complex topic. And I think you do a really good job of explaining it. I know that Runners who really enjoy an episode with a little bit more complexity, they listen to it a couple of times. This might be something they revisit a couple of times just to fully grasp, but I think you've done a fantastic job of allaying a lot of people's um, confusions and trying to put a a very complex subject into a nice, neat interview. So um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing all the knowledge that you do. And thanks for Cause Health and all the the brilliant
1: stuff you do with educating clinicians as well no thank you for having me on and and I, i'll reiterate again i'm just the messenger um cause health is is the is the one doing all the all the heavy listening i'm just the the guy that gets to talk about it
0: yeah well we're happy to have you mate and that concludes another run smarter lesson i hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a run smarter scholar because when i think of runners like you who are listening i think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge who don't just learn but implement these lessons who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again who want to take an educated active role in their rehab who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes and last but not least to serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your run smarter path.